There's hundreds of people here. Um, seriously, it's summertime, so we know that, that many of you are visiting with us. Many of our folks are visiting other people, and we just, you know, we can't ever get the exchange even, but that's okay. We're glad you're here. Um, we are, are thrilled. If you are a father and you didn't get uh, one of the little uh, crosses that we handled, handed out, um, please stop by the hub, the information desk on your way out and uh, pick up one of those because we want you to have one of those today. Um, uh, before we get started, you've seen some flyers like, like this around um, everywhere in the building. Um, I don't know if you know what this is. This is a five-barrel water cannon. And basically the way it works is you put it in a water source and you fill it up like that and then see if, if, if we were Methodists, I'd just baptize you all right now. Um, <laughs> we may have to edit that one out on the, on the <laughs> sorry. Um, but basically you just shoot it. And, and we're going to have five or six of these all in the back in water sources. There's going to be water balloons. There's going to be uh, uh, the water slides are already out there. They're just not aired up yet. Um, and so it is going to be cool tonight after S&T. So S&T starts at 5 o'clock. Um, be here at 5 o'clock. And um, it, you're, you're not even going to have to listen to me. Rex Davis is going to be delivering the devotional. And so um, S&T at 5 o'clock. And then afterwards, we're going to go in the back. Um, we're going to have uh, pizza that's going to be uh, coming in. So you'll have something to eat. The uh, Kona ice truck is going to show up. And um, that is, um, they're going to be here sometime around 6 o'clock. That's snow cones, for those of you who don't know what that is. Um, so all that's going to be happening tonight. So if you're, if you're, if you're uh, able, make it back because we want you to be here. If I ask you this morning, what's your favorite song, what would you say? Blessed Assurance. See, I heard one over here, Blessed Assurance. That's a good one. There's a bunch. See, when y'all all yell at once, it sounds like this. Blah, 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 blah. So let's try this again. Over here, what would you say? It is well with my soul. That is a good one. We could sing that one again. That's awesome. But you, then you start to ask, right? Wouldn't you qualify it? Do we want it to be secular or spiritual? Because if we talk about secular songs, my, my favorite song may be different, right? Or some of you, maybe it's not. And that's, God bless you, you're, you're holier than I am. That's okay. Um, but in a secular song, you might have a different choice. Or you may want to narrow it down even more. You know, I may have a favorite country song, and I may have a favorite rock song, and I may have a favorite pop song, and I don't know, there's a bunch of other ones that I can't name. But, and, and then you start asking, well, can I have more than one? Why does it have to be just one? That would be a hard question for us to answer. We'd want a little, a little wiggle room with that. Plato famously said, music gives wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. And so music is, is what's important to us. It sets apart what, what moves us, what changes us, what speaks to us. We sing about all kind of things, mostly love. If you listen to the radio, we sing about, uh, about, about love and about lost love and about found love and about unrequited love and about new love and about love gone wrong. And we sing songs about rain and songs about booze and songs about, uh, I mean, you name it. We got a song about everything, right? Um, pretty much everything you can name in the human experience, we sing about. So my, my question then differently would be, what do you think? is the, the topic 
of the first recorded song in the Bible. Oh, you didn't know there was going to be a test, did you? The first recorded song in the Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, we find the first recorded song in the Bible. It is a song that Moses and Miriam sing after God has, has, has delivered them. God has demolished any notion that, that may have existed in the world that the Egyptian gods were anything other than false constructs. That's, that's what all the plagues were about. Each one of those plagues, we may come back to this at another time, but each one of those plagues corresponds to the power of an Egyptian god. And God was basically saying, you got a god of the sun? Well, guess what? I'm going I'm to eclipse it. You got a God of the Nile? Well, I'm going to turn that to blood. And, and God is basically saying, your gods that you worship, they're nothing. I'm God. There's only one God, and, and it's me. And it's not any of these other, of these other guys. God delivers the, the, the slaves from the, from the grip of Egypt, and, and they come out, and, and they sing this song. And it's a really, it's, it's much longer, but one verse captures the, the whole essence of this song. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, and working wonders. Everything, everything springs out of that holiness. We're walking through a, 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 a series right now, if you're just joining us, called The Real God. And basically the idea is we're looking at attributes of God, of how God wants us to see Him, of, of ways that, that attributes of God's character, with the idea that as, as we come to a close, we will have drawn closer to God and we will fulfill our mission, which, which we state as to love God and to love people and to, to serve others. And so part of loving God is knowing who He is and understanding who He is. Now, this is not something that we came up with. This is a, a series that we got from Right Now Media, Chip Ingram, uh, Living on the Edge Ministries. And so we didn't put it all together. If I would have put it together, we would have started with this week. We would have started with the holiness of God. Because everything else springs out of the holiness of God. And the problem is, we talked about in class this morning, we don't have a real good grip of what that means. Holy. What does holy mean? We don't really, we don't really know. We have this idea in our society it means something that's religious or something that's, that's devout, something that's, uh, that's part of religion. We have a holy Bible or, or, or the Catholics will have the holy water. There will be uh, uh, different holiness. Uh, if we say something is holy, we're saying that it's in some way spiritual. It's some way uh, uh, devoted to religion. But in the Bible, the notion of holiness is much bigger than that. It's not something that's merely morally pure, although that is an aspect of it. It's much bigger. The holiness of God is, is, is it's really the otherness, if, if I can make up a word, of God. It's, it's, the, it's the creative force. It's the power of God that, that sets Him apart. It's, it's so utterly different. It's the power of God that, that creates our galaxy, that, that, that this incomprehensible power. But it's more than just power. It's the creativity. It's the God that didn't just create a world. He created all the intricate systems of the world. And, and a God who didn't, didn't just create uh, light and dark, but created sunrises and sunsets that, that 
bring us to, to awe and wonder. It's, it's the God who created and, and put art into everything that he does. That He didn't have to do the, the, the beauty in the creation that he does. But, but that beauty, that diversity is, is just another, uh, another, uh, another sign of his holiness. And that, that artistry. God is, it, it's something that, that sets God apart. God is so far removed from us that we can't even begin to comprehend it. I said in class this morning, us trying to understand God's holiness would be like if I asked Rick White to explain the intricacies of biochemistry to Burke Spencer. It, he's not equipped to understand that. He's not there yet. And, and that's where a lot of us are with, with the holiness of God. We don't have the mental capabilities and, and, and may not ever to fully understand what God's holiness means. It's what separates Him. It's His, it's his otherness. Once, as an experiment, the great Isaac Newton stared at the image of the sun reflected in a mirror. And he stared at it for so long that the brightness burned into his retina. And he suffered temporary blindness. Even after he hid for three days behind closed shutters, still the bright spot would not fade from his vision. He said, I used all means to divert my imagination from the sun, but I thought upon him, but if I thought upon him, I presently saw his picture, even though I was in the dark. If he had stared a few minutes longer, Newton would have permanently lost all vision. Because the chemical receptors that govern eyesight can't withstand the full force of unfiltered sunlight. That, that experiment is a parable of what it's like for us to, to gaze into the holiness of God. The sun is like an image of God. And what I mean by that is that, yes, it gives light and life to our planet and in our solar system. But it's so massive that we really don't fully comprehend it. We think we have an idea, but we've never been close enough to grasp how ma- uh, the magnitude of, of what the sun is. And the sun's also dangerous because we can't get close enough to it. We can't get within proximity of it because if we do... The results are catastrophic. It's why in in Exodus, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses starts to come up, God says, No, Moses, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes, because the ground you're standing on is holy. God says, My holiness, you can't be in proximity to my holiness. If you you come any closer, it's going to be catastrophic for you. And so God's holiness is not just majestic, it's not just power, it's dangerous. The Israelites ultimately learned from the wilderness wanderings. They they had attempted to live with with the Lord of the universe present in their midst. But, But in the end, out of all the thousands who had so gladly fled Egypt, only two survived. Only two survived. It's it's like the story of of Uzzah in the Scripture. Do you remember the story of Uzzah? David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And this is a triumphal moment in David's life. He he has a capital. He has united the kingdoms. He is the undisputed king of everything. And he says, I want to go get the ark, which has been uh, in storage and and lost for years, and I want to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so they go get it, and they set it up on this cart, and they start this processional, and there's a party, and there's music, and there's a parade, and everything's going. And and, uh, the, the ox stumble, and they hit a bump. The ark starts to tip off, and Uzzah reaches up to steady it, 
And as he touches it, bam! Us are struck dead. Party's over. And we read that and we go, wow, that seems really harsh. Why was God so harsh on Uzzah? Hans Kung, who is a, a theologian, says, I'm not surprised that Uzzah died, but that the rest of us are still alive. Uzzah is one of the sons of Abinadab. He's a priest, and so he knows. He's been living with this ark for years. He knows that, that this is a holy thing that he's not supposed to come into contact with it. So it's not just some kid that was walking along. Ignorance is not an excuse. He knew that, but, but the problem is, is that he didn't hallow the presence of God. He didn't respect the holiness of God. And, and instead of this, this being the holy presence of God, it's a piece of furniture. It's a box that needs me to help put it back on the cart. And so because of that, he reaches up he touches the ark because, because God needs his help. I've often joked that we should put up signs around churches that say, beware of God. Because we don't get that the holiness of God is dangerous. And like Uzzah, we become complacent. The holy and sacred things become things. And we find ourselves in danger of walking that path that we don't consider God holy. Or we take the other direction. Uh, we put God in a box. Uzzah put God in a box. He knew everything he needed to know. He had God all figured out. God was lucky that Uzzah was around to help him. God was lucky that Uzzah was there to keep him from falling off the cart. So when he reaches out to steady the ark, he, he's, he's actually, this is something necessary for him to help God. And, and you see this in churches all the time. You see the people who consider themselves gatekeepers, that we have to protect the church from, from this or that. And, and we, have to, we have to protect the church from the outside forces, um, and in their minds, the Bible hasn't said anything new in, in 60, 70 years. And, and that they've got it all figured out. And the problem with that is it doesn't hallow the name of God. God doesn't need us to defend Him. That's a dangerous path to walk. And quite frankly, if your God doesn't challenge you, if your God doesn't surprise you, if your God doesn't scare you at all, it's not the God of the Bible. The Jews created the temple, and when they created the temple, it was a place where the holy presence of God came to dwell. The actual place where that dwelled was called the Holy of Holies, right? And, and the presence of God would come into the Holy of Holies. And they had intricate systems where they would go through these rituals to try to, be, to make themselves holy for a moment, because that's all we could manage. They would go through these long, intricate rituals. They would be holy for long enough to step into the Holy of Holies, change out some things, and step out, because... Any longer than that, there would be a thought, there would be a glance, there would be something, and we would revert back to our place of unholiness. We couldn't keep the holiness. It was something that, that, that they could create, that, that, that they could pursue. And, and being in the presence of God, being in the presence of the holiness of God was dangerous, and they knew that. Any being that can create the Pacific Ocean with a word should bring about some fear in us. 
And so the book of Leviticus is there to detail all these rituals that they would have to do. And, and all these rituals that they would have to do to be ceremonially clean, to be pure. And they would complete these elaborate rituals and it would last for a bit. But, but again, they were in danger of being in the presence of God and, and, and that they would be somehow in the presence of God and the unholiness in them would cause them to be struck like Uzzah. In Isaiah, we find Isaiah having a vision. Isaiah is a priest, and, and, and in his vision, he is in the temple. He is in the place where he's in the presence of God, and he's worried because he knows he's not supposed to be there. And the presence of God is manifest in this place, so much so that, that Isaiah says the train of his garment totally filled the building, that, that God's presence literally consumed the whole place. God was everywhere. He completely engulfs the room. And his presence is more than Isaiah can comprehend. Isaiah is afraid because he knows he's not supposed to be there. He knows that anyone who is unclean and comes into the presence of the holiness of God is going to die. And so he cries out. He cries out because he knows he's not worthy to be in God's presence. He cries out. And that, by the way, is the effect of a true encounter with God. If you truly encounter God, you should be convicted of your unholiness, of your own unrighteousness. And, and Isaiah is left trembling. Isaiah is, is cowering. Isaiah cries out, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm going to die. I shouldn't be here. And then a creature, uh, a seraphim. Now, don't think angel because the angel is not what you're picturing. This thing has six wings and, and two cover its face and two cover its feet and two fly. Yeah, it's more like that. It's, it's, it's something that's so outside of our our understanding. The voice of these things literally shakes the foundation of the temple in Isaiah's vision. And with those voices, they are crying out to each other. They are singing a song that is much like that first song that we heard in Exodus 15. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The Hebrew there is that they were, they were continually singing to one another. Like it always was going. It never stopped. It was a song that continued to play. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Which, by the way, I'll hear people say, well, I don't like the new songs because they just have a couple of lines and I just don't want to sing a couple of lines. I need more stanzas. You're going to hate heaven. Because that's what is happening right there. Two, two lines. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. That was free. Um, but one of those creatures flies down and takes a coal from the altar and he comes down to touch Isaiah's lips. And here's why this is a big deal. Because traditionally, purity, especially in humans, can be corrupted. It doesn't take much for something to be corrupted. There is, there is, there, there is always, the, the purity is destroyed. It's contaminated. It's called, it's called negativity dominant contamination. The idea that, that the bad always destroys the good. You with me? And, and so this idea that there is no, oh, just a little bit. If I told you this morning that we'd filled the baptistry with lemonade, Right? We'd filled the baptistry with lemonade, but there might have been just a little bit of urine that's in there. Would you take a drink? No, because just a little bit still contaminates. That's the way our understanding works. But in God's economy, it doesn't work that way. The coal is not made unclean. 
Instead, the angel, the seraphim, takes this coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips and the purity is transferred. Chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Your sin is covered. Now where does that sound familiar? Leviticus, when God is instituting the, the idea of sacrifice, he says the blood is what brings atonement. In 1 John then, John's going to tie it to that, that, that Jesus is the propitiation, is that atonement, the sacrifice for our sins. Um, we can go through a whole bunch more. We can go through 1 Peter and John and Romans and Matthew. And, and in all these things, each one of these is going to be saying something about the Lamb being what takes away the sin of the world. Until finally we get to 2 Corinthians 5 and, and verse 21. And Paul says, he, who, he made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The vision Isaiah of Isaiah is a vision of Jesus. That Jesus is that coal that is going to bring the atonement, that is going to make me holy enough that I can come into the presence of God. Because He is made to be sin. He takes my contamination and I am imbued with His holiness. From the beginning, God has been saying to His people, be holy because I am holy. But we can't. We can't do it. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. We're not capable of doing it. We can't complete it. We can't be righteous. We can't be holy until Jesus. Jesus makes us clean. Jesus atones for us. He transfers His righteousness to us. And through Him, we can come into the holy presence of God, not just for an instance, not just for as long as a sacrifice or a ritual lasts, but forever. Which brings us back to those songs. We talked about the first song in Scripture. You know what the last song in Scripture is about? Bet you can guess. When the 90-year-old apostle John was granted by God to look into the future, he saw a moment when the final outpouring of the wrath of God was about to take place. And gathered in heaven were those whose faith and allegiance to God had, had cost them their lives. And John tells us that, that chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, that they sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? Why? Because you alone are holy. Because all the nations will come and worship you. Because your righteous acts have been revealed. God's holiness, God's otherness, God's separateness, God's holiness is amazing, majestic, awe-inspiring. It's too much for us to handle. But the song of the Lamb is that He has been slain to make us clean, to make us pure, to make us holy. You often hear people say, I, I don't understand why Christianity has to be so exclusive. You ever heard that? Did Jesus really say that no one could come to the Father except through Him? That's so offensive. They don't use that tone, but that's in my mind. That's so offensive. But the truth is, that's like saying, I don't understand why we have to use special gloves to handle this plutonium. For real. Why, that's so offensive. Why aren't there other ways that I can touch the plutonium? We, we laugh, 
but it's the same thing. God's not saying that some arbitrary creation that, that, that you can't come into my presence and I'm going to only create one avenue. God's saying you can't come into my presence, period, because you're not clean. You're unholy. And my holiness is so much that if you come into the presence of it, it will kill you. It will destroy you, not just physically, but eternally. You can't handle it. But yet we're made to long to be with God. We're made to long to to, to be a part of of everything that He's doing. We're made to want to be in His presence. And He desperately wants to be with us. From the beginning, the whole creation was that He would be with us. He would walk beside Adam in the garden. That's the way it was intended at the beginning. And from that point, from the point where we messed that up and sin entered the world, God has been at work bringing us back to Him. The holiness of God is devastating. It's awesome. It's magnificent. And it's deadly. Coming into the holiness unclean can destroy us unless we've been cleansed. And the only way to be cleansed is through the life-giving blood of Jesus Christ. That's not exclusive. That's miraculous. That's not offensive. That's gospel. That's good news. The good news is that God has created a way for us to be in His presence. The same God who has said over and over again, be holy because I am holy, has created a way to make us holy. That through Jesus we can be made holy so that we can come into His presence. That is good news. That's the gospel. And this morning that's the call to all of us. That that we come into His presence And the way we come into His presence is by being covered in the blood of Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Well, we repent. We say, I'm a man of unclean lips, like Isaiah. We confess publicly that we believe that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then we're immersed in the waters of baptism. We submit and and symbolically die and are resurrected, made a new creature. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, that is so holy that we can't even come into its presence, then comes to live inside of me and give life to my mortal body. That's gospel. That's good news. That's amazing. And that's the call. If we can help you with that this morning, If we can pray for you, if we can help you with baptism, giving your life to Christ, please, don't wait another minute. Come into His presence right now while together we stand and sing. Hide me now.